Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. It's our tradition to go around and introduce all of us to one another each week. Uh, so we'll go around the room. Uh, I'm Marvin Snow. <coughs> Douglas Hall. Michael Horowitz. <coughs> Carl Wolf. <coughs> Ron Albuquerque. Louis Gardenberg. Michael Lebrie. I'm Gary Cutler. Michael Gable. Michael Murphy. Rich Aranam. John. Tom Kennedy. Adin Hashda. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go. Uh, Adin Peter. David Lewis. Chris Hammett. And Ron Mason. <coughs> Brian Houston. Francisco. <coughs> Todd Pope. Scott Stephens, Thomas Gardner, Hodge Murray, and Gilbert Lara, Dirk, Norman Simon, David Margolis, Junaid Leon, John Stewart, Anthony, Bill Childs, Jordan, Ray Dyer, Harvey Harba, Dean Bellamy, Michael Sue, Mark Hoffheimer, Barry Krieger, Don Weebert, Chris Russo, Jim Winters, Jerry Jones. Okay, great. Thank you. We were lucky to have Wes Mister with us this morning. Uh, he's been with us in the past. Uh, it's a great turnout this morning, uh, reflecting the interest we've had in your, your talks before, Wes. Uh, by way of introduction, uh, uh, Wes uh, is the co-founder and editor of the, the International Buddhist Journal, Inquiring Minds, and he's practiced meditation for over 30 years. He's the author of Buddha's Nature, Evolution as a Guide to Enlightenment, and Crazy Wisdom, a romp through the philosophies of East and West. In addition to leading a regular sitting group in Berkeley, he teaches classes in meditation and philosophy at Spirit Rock, and at other locations around the country. Um, I just happened to Google him this morning. Bless <laughs> 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 Mr. Quotes. <laughs> and this is what comes up. Uh, a review of Crazy Wisdom. Crazy Wisdom is deeply wise, wonderful, insightful, and delightfully humorous. Uh, from the San Francisco Chronicle, the same book, Crazy Wisdom. A dim sum feast of perceptive and amusing morsels. Um, let's see. What, uh, two, more, two more here. The, uh, from uh, Spirituality and Health. The author, West, takes us on a wild and lively ride through Eastern and Western philosophy and spirituality. Along the way, there are plenty of humorous sidebar quotations. Now more than ever, we need this brand of wisdom that opens us to wonder and hospitality. And finally, a quote just from Wes, one of his, his the way Google has it, it's your, your words. Uh, if you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own. <laughs> Wes, it's all yours. Thank you. <laughs> well, it is, uh, it's good to be with you all again. Uh, this group has grown a lot since uh, I was here the first time I was here, which must have been eight years ago now. Um, and uh, it's good to see you all. The wisdom is catching on, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, you must have been reading from, you know, there, I have to update that. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's more like 40 years I've been doing meditation <laughs> practice. Isn't it obvious? <laughs> uh, and... Uh, I no longer lead a, a group in Oakland, in case anybody's interested in that. Um, what I'd like to do today is, is just share a number of things. Uh, 
it's August. I don't want to give any kind of heavy, you know, teaching of five lists of this or that Buddhist uh, doctrine. So I thought I would just share some things that uh, have been up in my mind and uh, in the mind of the nation. Uh, we just got a new poet laureate this week announced, Charles Simic, and I, I wasn't familiar with his work, so I went and got uh, a couple books of his. I thought I'd read you a poem so you can uh, know your, what your poet laureate sounds like. Um, um, he's kind of a surrealist, uh, wild, wild guy. I like him. This is a poem called The Soul Has Many Brides. In India, I was greatly taken up with a fly in a temple, which gave me the distinct feeling it was possible, just possible, that we had met before. Was it in Mexico City, climbing the blood-spotted yellow legs of the crucified Christ, while his eyes grew larger and larger? May God seat you on the highest throne of his invisible kingdom, a blind beggar said to me in English. He knew what I saw. At the saloon where Pancho Villa fired his revolvers at the ceiling, on the bare ass of a naked nymph stepping out of a lake in a painting, and now shamelessly crawling up one of Buddha's nostrils, <laughs> whose smile got even more secretive, even more squint-eyed. <laughs> And uh, that was Charles Simic. Next week is the 50th anniversary of the publication of On the Road, speaking of poetry. And uh, that book, I think, if you believe in dependent co-arising, you know, it's definitely in the karmic mix that led to us being here together at this moment. It was a seminal book in, uh, in the evolution of uh, alternative culture in, in the United States. Um, Kerouac writes in that book about driving. He's always driving in that book, or always riding. You know, they're always moving. And he sees a cloud. He's in the plains, the great plains. He sees a cloud, and he sees it form into a finger, pointing at him. And he hears this voice telling him, go moan, go moan for man. He was very uh, melancholy, uh, sort of an intuitive Buddhist, but wrote a lot of interesting things about Buddhism. He, uh, one, one thing I love, he wrote, uh, I breathe in wisdom with in-breath. Without breath, I breathe out compassion fumigating the world with kindness. <laughs> and uh, that brings me to, see, it's all connected, uh, <laughs> the question of lineage. And this is the 40th anniversary of the Summer of Love. And uh, KFOG, where I work occasionally, when they let me, when we're not you know, debating whether to go to war when we're already in the war. They asked me to write a little piece about the Summer of Love, so this is it, and I'll I'll read it to you. This is the Summer of Love. Just put some flowers in your hair and in your pipe, and suddenly to San Francisco, 1967, And you've started the day with a toke or two, and now you're heading toward the park to see what's happening. And you're grooving, smiling at your tripped-out costumed comrades as you pass, when suddenly a Volkswagen full of laughing hippies drives by with Sergeant Pepper blasting away on the radio. And now you can't decide whether to spend the day saving the world or just savoring the world. So to help you decide, you have another toke. And this is Scoop, just trying to remember what it was like 40 years ago when the world was young. And our magical mystery tour begins a few decades before the Summer of Love in post-World War II America, which had just come of age as a superpower and was busy taking over the old European colonies with television and Coca-Cola and dreams too rich to ever be fulfilled. It was an America where the cars had started to grow fins, and the terrorists were called communists 
And the American dream was just starting to put everyone to sleep. (laughs) And in the heart of the new empire, a bunch of young rogues and visionaries began to articulate a different sensibility, a countercultural movement, one that built on the bass notes of European existentialists and found an American voice in the writing of the beatniks and in the musical forms of jazz and rock and roll and in the mythopoetic turn to the East. And for anyone like myself who had always felt like an outsider in America, it was thrilling to read Allen Ginsberg's prophetic poem, Howl, written way back in 1956, in which he denounces the god of war and commerce that had already taken over the soul of our nation. He named that god Moloch. Moloch the loveless. Mental Moloch. Moloch whose mind is pure machinery. Moloch whose blood is running money. Moloch, whose fingers are ten armies. But the beatniks were really romantics and mystics at heart, and they started introducing strange new words into the hipster's jive, words like karma and dharma and mantra and tantra. And it all sounded so exotic. I finally decided to come to the West Coast to become a beatnik. But it was 1967. Too late to make the scene, man. <laughs> so I got assigned to the hippies instead. <laughs> and I'm proud to say, I was a hippie. I was one of those idealistic, optimistic flower children walking around in tie-dyes, sporting a wild-looking Jufro. <laughs> too. And I was one of those who spent a lot of time in the late 60s, let's say, experimenting with my consciousness. Yes, through drugs, but also through meditation and yoga and the new psychologies of Gestalt and Reiki and energetics. And I was part of a vast conspiracy of young people who, at least for a couple years, refused to join the uptight consumer economy known to us as the system. We rejected the old world war and scarcity mentality of our parents as well as their prudish and Puritan morality. Instead, we sought a new consciousness, one that could celebrate life and sexuality and tune into nature and embrace the world as one. Okay, so maybe we were a little naive. Or maybe we just had it too good. As the psychologist Paul Goodman wrote in his famous book, Growing Up Absurd, quote, It was destined that the children of affluence, who grew up without toilet training and freely masturbating, would turn out to be daring, disobedient, and simple-minded. <laughs> so maybe that's why we started chanting, we want the world and we want it now, with just bad potty training. <laughs> but we were trying to create a better world and also trying to stop our government from conducting a criminal, horrific war the previous one. And we held some great protests, like the 1967 March on Washington when we levitated the Pentagon. That's right, we just surrounded the building, chanted Om, and up it went. (laughs) On that day, we were super hippies. But at least we weren't, but at heart, we weren't very political. Hippies had no analysis or five-year plan. Instead, our revolution was best expressed in the gatherings known as B-ins. Communal celebrations of just being. And just a few months before the Summer of Love, the San Francisco Oracle, a psychedelic journal in the Haight-Ashbury, announced the first human being taking place in Golden Gate Park. Quote, The spiritual revolution will be manifest and proven. We will shower the nation with waves of ecstasy and purification. Fear will be washed away. Ignorance exposed to sunlight. Prophets and empire will lie drying on deserted beaches, end quote. It was a spiritual revolution. And if the hippies have a legacy, it's in the yoga and meditation centers now existing in every town in America. And it's also in the modern ecology movement that got its start in the late 60s with back-to-the-land visions of ecotopia, plus a whole-earth catalog of appropriate technologies, the all-new ancient ways that are now necessary for our survivals survival. The hippies were right. It's time to decentralize, scale down, simplify, recreate community, make a new world. And in honor of the hippie legacy, I propose that somewhere, maybe on the mall in Washington, D.C., someday there should be a statue of the unknown hippie. People could visit, leave old buttons and flowers and beads. 
And however you feel about the hippies today, we sure could use a summer of love in America and in San Francisco right now. So go ahead. Turn off that isolating computer with its big brother brain, keeping you hyper busy and distracted. Just go out into the streets. Start talking to people about life or how to end the Iraq war or else go to the park. Arouse your wonder about the mysteries of creation or just sit down and feel the earth like the hippies used to do. And then vow to do everything you can to see that our little biosphere project continues. And then, friends, even if it's just for a few hours, banish your sorrow over what is happening to the world and have yourself a little be-in. Celebrate existence. Celebrate a summer of love. But it's about lineage. It's about connection all the way back. I mean, it goes, of course, all the way back to the Buddha and before the Buddha. But uh, this is our Sangha, you know, the American Sangha. It really started only about 50 years ago, and, you know, it's growing uh, rapidly, and it's very, it's a very hopeful sign. Uh, I'll tell you a little uh, bit about this retreat I just taught at Spirit Rock about two months ago now. Uh, it was a retreat called Against the Stream, and it was taught by Noah Levine and Vinnie Ferraro and myself. And uh, I don't know whether you're aware of Noah Levine, but he has sort of started a little mini revolution. Uh, among young people, uh, the Dharma punks. He wrote a book called Dharma Punks. He another wrote, wrote a recent book uh, called Against the Stream. And uh, I was out at Spirit Rock, and there we were, and there were 85 people, um, mostly I would say in their 30s, maybe a few a little older, a few a little younger, black hooded sweatshirts, pierced, tattooed. Uh, where a lot of the sweatshirts had Dharma punks on them or against the stream. So, and uh, Noah has been, well, he's lived for a while in San Francisco and then in New York and then in L.A., and he's got groups all over the country. Uh, so, like, some of the people had sweatshirts with Philly embroidered on the back, you know, Dharma punk from Philly, you know. And I realized uh, after being there with these people for uh, ten days that they had really they were already a sangha bonded by the the music and their their style of dress and in their common rebellion that they really found the Dharma because of largely because of Noah's work they found the Dharma as a means of rebellion and as, as a means of rejecting this mainstream the mainstream culture and um, they were hardworking, and they did. You know, they were really into the practice. It was really inspiring to me that uh, you know that stream continues, and uh, it was it was a little odd at times. I mean, there we are sitting. In, you know, we're in the beautiful hall. I don't know if you've been to Spirit Rock. It's a glorious meditation hall, and uh, Vinny was giving a Dharma talk about impermanence and about how things are always slipping away. And he said, uh, yeah, I remember being at an Aussie concert and I was really digging the concert and I was aware that it was, it was almost, it was just slipping away as I was loving it. And as he said that, a few of the yogis went, Aussie, Aussie. <laughs> I had never encountered such things in a meditation. <laughs> so, but it, it was truly, it was truly inspiring. Um, lineage. Now, the other thing I wanted to share with you, how much, how much time should I ramble on here? Another 15 minutes. Okay. Um, I've been uh, 
through working on a book and going through um, my notebooks and my files and my computer. And there's a one, the biggest file is my science file. And uh, I never used to like science. When I was growing up in, in school, uh, I always thought it was just kind of all this useless information, you know, about atomic valence or how the planets were formed, and that I had to memorize all this stuff. And I would much rather, you know, read a novel by Dostoevsky or some piece of philosophy or something that pointed directly to my life. I never really uh, got interested in science until I really realized it was all about me. That, uh, that uh, you know, what science is talking about is, you know, the law of gravity, which tries to explain how I am held to this planet. Or, you know, uh, the photosynthesis that creates the fuel that feeds this life, my life. Or the... Um, the neurons and the way they fire and how that creates my experience. And uh, so I, 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 and I think that my interest in science also coincided with my, the beginning of my meditation practice when I really uh, started investigating the nature of self and mind and, and what, you know, what, what this is all about. Um, but now, I, I'll, almost every day, I will add something to my science file. It, and uh, then I'll, often I'll go back and do some thinking about it and musing on it. Uh, and I'm particularly interested in the science that I read that points to dukkha, anicca, anatta, you know, the three characteristics uh, of life as defined by the Buddha. And sometimes I'll read some science, a piece of science information that will just lift me immediately into an altered state of, you know, a sense of oneness or awe or, uh, you know, realization of no self or all self. So I thought I would share a few things from my science notebooks. And uh, even though my musings about this are debatable, the information is all science, so you know it's true. <laughs> now, one of the things that I, I really uh, have, I love, but I have a little bit of trouble with in, in science is all the numbers, the big numbers. Most of them are meaningless uh, in the sense of being incomprehensible to our tiny brains and our tiny perspectives. Uh, but I read recently that there are a hundred sextillion stars in the universe. Sure, I mean, who am I to disagree? Uh, and one scientist actually claims to have figured out the size of the universe. He says it's 10 billion trillion trillion cubic light years large. Okay, approximately, all right? <laughs> And that was uh, as of September 1st, <laughs> uh, uh, 2006. Uh, I've got so many of these numbers in my head, I, I started to get confused when I'm not near my notes about whether there are estimated 50 or 100 billion galaxies and whether there are 50 or 100 trillion cells in each of us. And sometimes I confuse the two categories. Uh, maybe we'll discover that there are exactly as many galaxies as there are cells. And that will either be a strange coincidence or a hint that reality isn't just about chaos bumping into itself. Uh, all these numbers, though, really, uh, what they come down to is that uh, it's really easier to be a mystic and see it all as one. <laughs> and then, of course, the question remains, who's counting? <laughs> okay, here's some whimsy. I mean, some of this stuff is just, you know, this is about laughter. I call it yuckology. Research shows that when you have a belly laugh, you breathe in six times more oxygen than normal. And some experts estimate that 20 seconds of laughter is equal to 20 minutes of cardiovascular exercise. <laughs> Usually something is funny as well, which is its own reward. <laughs> In fact, laughter stimulates the euphoric 
The euphoria centers in the brain, the same ones that light up over chocolate or sex. <laughs> now, actual scientific studies, some people, you know, get research grants for this kind of stuff. Actual scientific studies have been done on the vocalization and burst rates of laughter, finding that across cultures, the most constant consonant of laughter is H. Most of us go ha-ha or hee-hee or ho-ho. <laughs> and the researchers also found that nobody laughs, laughs with mixed con- consonants, such as in ha-fa-la-ha-ha. Nobody, nobody, <laughs> nobody across cultures does, does that. But this is really the most interesting part. Anthropologists now believe that the human ha-ha evolved from the rhythmic sounds made by other primate species when tickling and chasing each other in play. They make a sound like hoo hoo. Primates like to tickle each other, and one scientist has determined that the first joke ever made was the fake tickle. When the gesture to tickle is made, but withdrawn before contact. Ha ha, fooled you, you know? <laughs> the first joke. Oh, more numbers. Here's another numbers one. Every cell in your body goes through 4,000 transactions a second, processing fuels, exchanging chemical and electrical signals with other cells, monitoring the environment, creating proteins, enzymes. Considering that you have approximately 50 trillion cells in your body, there are literally quadrillions of events taking place inside of you every single second. So stay mindful. Now, the new neuroscience is really exciting and fun, and, you know, they're, they're hooking up yogis to uh, all these brain scans and discovering, really, uh, science kind of confirming what uh, meditators have known for centuries, that you can actually gain a little control of your mind. You can actually shift uh, your sort of mood uh, to a certain degree. Uh, I sometimes sense... Uh, science information, however, is bringing an um, unskillful bias into my practice. For instance, ever since I heard that greater activity in the left frontal cortex of the brain correlates with more contentment, I've been sort of leaning that way in my <laughs> exploring that area of my head with my, with my mindfulness. When, when I first started to meditate, I, I would focus on my third eye because I had a lot of pressure there until my teacher at the time, S.N. Goenka, told me to stop focusing there because it would give me yogic powers. I would begin to be able to, and that would distract me from the pure path of the Buddha. So I'm going to let myself do a little uh, more of this exploration in my left frontal cortex. If I find the sweet spot, I'll let you know. (laughs) Oh, yes, okay. Space-time. Now, we have to get used to space-time. You know, we, we have been mistaken for, for so long, and Einstein set us right. We can no longer regard space-time and time as a separate dimensions, that they are one thing, space-time. And so we have to start learning to use the conjunction and, and uh, realize, you know, and begin to sense that uh, where you are is also when. Uh, Zen master Dogen realized this. He said, there's nothing in the universe that is not contained in a moment of time. Or as a, an artist, Robert Smithson wrote, space is the corpse of time. Anyway, spiritual seekers might want to make note. If it's all space-time, then be here now is redundant. <laughs> Meanwhile, I find it very interesting that this mind-body split or spirit-body split continues to exist, even among um, modern adepts and spiritual seekers who believe that we are born through a spiritual medium and not a material one. But why, perhaps it's like space-time, and both are necessary for any kind of consciousness to manifest. 
that maybe we could start calling it spirit matter or, you know, matter spirit. Uh, as far as I know, I, I can't experience consciousness outside of any context but this body and nervous system. Uh, and yet, people claim that they're, you know, that we're, that the essence of ourselves is somehow not connected to this physical form. Which seems a little bit to me like a throwback to the old, you know, it's fear of death, you know. Uh, way back in ancient times when people started to realize that everybody falls over and stops moving and starts to stink and, you know, and nobody wants to do that. Uh, they, they just... I mean, we're a clever species. We just figured we'll conquer death by deciding it doesn't happen. You know, we'll... The essence of you goes on, you know. So you... That essence will live on. Uh, who knows? I mean, you know, there's a great story about a Zen master and the disciple comes and says, what happens after death? And the Zen master says, I don't know. And the disciple says, but you're a Zen master. And the Zen master says, yeah, but I'm not a dead Zen master. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I I, I wonder about that, you know. I mean, maybe maybe we can... uh, Maybe there'd be something to gain by sensing ourselves as part of the life of this planet, which means sense ourselves, our, our essence, our true nature as being connected to this form. See, it's, you know, I'm, I'm putting it all together here. It, it'll all come together here at the end, I think, somewhere. <laughs> this, is a, this is really interesting. Uh, I remember reading in some Buddhist literature, probably the Abhidhamma, quite a, quite a while ago, that the Buddha said that things change millions of times in the blink of an eye. And it's always puzzled me, did he slow his mind down enough to be able to count, you know? how many changes were going on. But now, inside the subatomic world, we find evidence of impermanence that is so impermanent, uh, it makes our ordinary reality seem frozen in time. Way down inside of everything where the quarks are like doing a rumba, you know, inside of electrons, events are occurring in increments far shorter than the blink of an eye. Blink of an eye is considered to be a tenth of a second. In the subatomic world, time is sometimes measured in attoseconds, which is a millionth of a trillionth of a second. It takes an electron about an attosecond to travel around a proton. Meanwhile, inside the proton, perhaps one level level deeper into reality, an attosecond would be regarded as a long nap. Down here, time is measured in zeptoseconds, which is a billionth of a trillionth of a second. Zeptosecond. And I think at some point the physicists realized that they had entered a Marx Brothers routine <laughs> where the, the jokes are coming so fast you begin to see that it's all a joke. So when they started to measure things changing even faster in trillions of a trillions of a second, they named it a yoctosecond. So you've got Atto, Zepto, and Yocto. <laughs> Hello, I must be going, right? (laughs) The time it takes for a quark to go around a proton is somewhere between a zepto and a yocto second. Just about all you can do is smile and let go, huh? (laughs) Well, I think what I'll do is just uh, see if we have any uh, additions or corrections or... uh, I, I am a lay scientist, as they say. You know, I don't. I'm not. And sometimes I get corrected on my science that you know I've grabbed something that doesn't really mean that at all, and my extrapolations from it are totally bizarre, bonkers. Anyway, or or questions about anything that I have put out there. Yeah. Uh, a pseudonym named uh, Wei Wu Wei writes some very interesting books about science and a lot in it. Do you have any comment about his work? I know one of his poems. Uh, why are you unhappy? 
Because 99% of everything you say and everything you do is for yourself, and there isn't one. <laughs> that's, really, that's one. That's very weird. I don't. I haven't really read the science books. Have you read? Have you read the science yes, books? Yes, yes, I have. And they're good. Absolutely fascinating. Uh-huh. Open up new dimensions. His comment about that which is so far beyond that there are no words for it. His words for that are uh, brilliant. Uh, brilliant, vast uh, emptiness manifested by grace, and I found that as close myself to that which is totally wordless as I've ever read. Uh-huh. I have it on my window uh, where I live, and people are probably wondering where he is now. But uh, yeah, sure, I, I I find it to be excellent. Mm-hmm. Wayne Ligerman, do you know him of the Advaita.org people? No. Yeah. Advaita.org people. Oh, org, org, oh. A, a, a group of fans around Wayne uh-huh. Wu Wei and the ideas that non-duality that they're uh-huh. associated with them. Um, are you? Do you follow the Evo Devo discussions? I just read the Evo Devo by. Uh, that that guy who wrote it. <laughs> uh, no, I, I I love that. That's yes, the, it, yeah. The evolution, evolutionary science is my favorite thing, and I have books that I haven't read, you know, just stacked up. Uh, but Evo Devo basically, I mean, they they thought that uh, we share we they know we share a lot of our DNA and our, our genetic information with other species, but then they they began to find that. Uh, we actually share the same genes, uh, and that if you look at all uh, all the different beings, you realize that we all have kind of the same floor plan, you know, a head on one end and a tail, or a, you know, on the other end, and limbs coming out from a, a basic elongated frame, and uh, you know, we eat at the at the head end, and we have our senses usually most of them at the head end, so we can see the food and. And avoid being food, and uh, you know, I mean, that's. I I read once about the first heads, and the first heads were a, a group of cells arranged around the mouth to give the mouth more manipulating ability, and that you know, I started to experience that this head is basically there, you know, the better to eat with, my dear. I mean, it's the eyes, you know, where's the food? The hair, you know, that's. Uh, but anyway, in the in the they found now that they, we have these work workshop or tool toolbox genes, and you can take the gene that tells a fruit fly to grow a wing here and put it in a frog. The frog will grow a frog leg there from that gene. That that gene is basically telling that particular body to express a limb at that place, and that you know we aren't we, we for so long we thought we were so different than all the other. Beings on this planet, and we're we're really starting to understand how how closely related we are. I think it's very exciting, actually. I think it's going to shift. I think our whole worldview is is starting to shift. And uh, Darwin knew it. I mean, Darwin said that in in one of his his notebooks uh, that was recently published, he said when he started to to write his theory, he said it. Was, he felt like it was uh, confessing to a murder. Uh, but I think the evolutionary evolutionary uh, <coughs> science is really telling us how little self there is. I mean, it is the strongest affirmation of the Buddha's notion of anatta, of no self, that I have ever discovered. I mean. I guess if you just think about it and think about all the events that had to occur, biological evolution, cosmic evolution, creation of elements, and all of the things that had to occur to create you in this moment, you realize that there's no self in it. I mean, that it's just an unfolding of processes. But And biological evolution, I think, gives us a real sense that these emotions are inherited these urges, these, you know, um, 
that pretty much the whole show is 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 karma, is collective karma. It's not a single person's karma. That we all uh, inherit the karma of all the life that came before us. Anyway, that's a mouthful. <laughs> we could talk for about three years about that. Yeah. Okay. Um, Shun Salzberg wrote a book called Faith mm-hmm. that she was trying to dust the word off. And, right. And, right. Uh, can you comment about that? The concept of faith. Um, no. <laughs> I guess I have faith that, you know, that somehow it's all the way it's supposed to be. And uh, that's, I guess that's about all that I have faith in. I have faith in the Dharma. Yeah. Okay. I uh, very interesting article in this week's Science Times. Yes, I love Science Times. Did you read it? About the subconscious? Yeah. Yes. Fascinating. Yes. Yes. Fascinating. Yeah, if you, uh, if you give people a task and you have a... Uh, uh, well, if, if you meet... If, if, the experiment was somebody carrying a lot of books would pass a passerby to uh, a student going to a class to uh, uh, help them hold his cup of coffee while they were, you know, rearranging their things. So they would either hand them a cup of iced tea or a cup of hot coffee. And that's all they did. And they didn't have any interchange other than that. And the people went on to class, and those who had their cup of iced tea were rigid in their thinking and uh, uh, more rigid. More rigid. Yeah. 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 More rigid in their thinking than the people who had their own <laughs> The same experiment with having people in their room doing exercises, and some of them are looking at a executive briefcase of a CEO type thing, and the others are looking at a kind of a pile of books that are loose and some <coughs> and their entire approach to answering solutions to a problem was based on what could be divided by their rigidity or, or openness and so on. You know, said, yeah, what the hell is all this sitting down and examining my consciousness really about? I'm not seeing anything. (laughs) 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 I'm not seeing anything about that's going to make any difference. Well, right. Well, I I mean... That's all good. Yeah. I I mean, I see partly the the lesson in that. I mean, is that you can also say... If, if there's any chance for me to actually be free of the patterns of my temperament and my personality, uh, then it's by seeing them clearly in, by some, through some process and beginning to learn to be able to reject them and ignore those patterns and to act freely. And I, I don't know of any other way than, than, than through meditation practice. Not to take them too seriously. That, well, that, there's that too. There's that too. And uh, I think that one of the things that, uh, when, I, when I first started to practice, and a lot of people who I've talked to had a similar uh, naive notion that somehow you're going to change your, yourself, your personality. You're going to become someone totally different. You know, you're going to become someone who's easier to live with. <laughs> but, uh, but after, you know, I, I don't see anybody who's really... Everybody's temperament is still pretty much the same and has the same tendencies and the same obsessions and, and things. But you, you learn not to take them so personally that it's something that you're kind of, that's living through you, that you're not doing. It's sort of like your personality is doing you. And uh, it allows you to be much lighter with it and much less identified with it as, as I or me. Yeah, please, so, Chris. Um, actually, my name is John. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> so, with the idea of a no self, that's the idea of, of a self that's not permanent. So there is a temporary self. Well, on a relative level, yeah, we all have 
names and ranks and serial numbers. And, um, but it is, uh, on, on another level of understanding, we realize that we are the result of all these processes coming together in a particular way. And uh, in some sense, you, you realize you didn't choose this being. You don't choose your body. You don't choose your personality. Almost. You don't choose being human. You know, I mean, it's sort of like this is what comes out of the, all these processes coming together. So you don't impute a lot of, of, of the sense of I into this process that's going on. You continue to exist and function in the world, but uh, again, you don't take it so personally. And when you don't take it so personally, it, it loses its... It, it becomes less fraught with... Uh, with suffering, I mean, it just. I mean, I think one one of the things the Buddha was always trying to do was to somehow desentimentalize life, you know, uh, to sort of take it down a notch from the kind of super importance that we give to it. I know that that sounds like oh, you know, we could all run amok if we just if we desentimentalize life, you know, but it it won't happen because. It's programmed to not happen, uh, but uh, you know the Buddha was saying, uh, understand that this. He did he uh, on one in one meditation practice on death, on the body actually, he has you reflect on the thirty-two parts of the body as a reflection on the repulsive, to kind of break your attachment to the body. Uh, other several places he talks about there is only seeing and that which is seen, hearing and that which is heard. That there is no central self in there, and he really wants to break our identification with this uh, this sense of self because that's what will lead to our our freedom and lack of suffering, our happiness. Anyway. One or two more questions. Dean. I appreciated your, your the prose that you shared with us on the Summer of Love. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, at the end of this month, there's two things connected to that. On the, I think it's this first Sunday, there's something in Speedway Meadows, there's a day long re- revival, I guess, from 10 to 6. But September I'm, 2nd, I think, yeah. Yeah. But I'm interested in your um, perceptions of Burning Man, how, whether that's at all. I think it has elements of that. I think, especially in the creation of community, the idea that you know there's nothing for sale, the, the expression of art and creativity, and let's play, let's celebrate being. We'll burn it all up at the end, like a Tibetan sand mandala. We'll just wipe it out. It'll all be momentary, so it'll be just that moment. I think it has yeah a lot of connections to to that kind of. Be in philosophy. Yeah, I was just there once, but uh, I, I, I was moved. I was impressed. <laughs> I, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, uh, I was in a discussion with him a couple of weeks ago, and he said uh, we were talking about the summer of love and the first human being. And he said that he was on stage there with uh, Tim Leary and and Richard Alpert and uh, I guess uh, Gary Snyder was there and Allen Ginsberg and at one point Ginsberg leaned over to Ferlinghetti and said what if we're wrong about all this? (laughs) (laughs) He was you know he was a wonderful guy. One last question. Otherwise, we'll Okay. Thank you all. Great. Pleasure to be here with you. We have a host today. The host, yes, could you tell us? Um, there's tea. And um, some fruits.
Um, and they also have a Donna Bowl. And so um, there's a suggested giving, but whatever you feel should be really good. And if you do drink tea, please clean your cup and put it on the rack. Any, any announcements? Yeah, Michael. Yeah. Uh, we have a newsletter to mail today. So uh, about 10 minutes into the social time, uh, it'd be great if we had like 8 to 12 people who could help. It takes generally about a half hour to 45 minutes. <coughs> uh, we'll assemble around the couch there. Yeah, um, next week, um, by popular demand, we're having another poetry day. We started, uh, we had one in uh, early June, and uh, men brought a poem to share, and it was uh, a very moving and um, substantial uh, morning. So uh, we encourage you to go through your favorite poems with some mindfulness according to length. You know, the song of the wolf is probably not a poem. <laughs> <laughs> So that's my story. And it could be a prose, you know, if there's a paragraph that really uh, strikes your heart, please, please share it. So good. Other announcements? I one thing to draw to your attention, especially since there are so many new people here today, uh, on the counter, as on the right wall as you go out, there's the Donable. And adjacent to the Donable are a couple of things that you might be interested in. There's a trifold that gives an overview of GBF. Uh, there's the, uh, the newsletter that comes out quarterly. Take a look at this. Uh, there's a sign-up sheet. Encourage everybody who hasn't signed up to sign up. And there's a place to indicate whether you'd like to be in our directory. Copies of the directory are there. So read the details that are necessary. Todd, you're still entering the directory? Uh, I, I just handle the names and addresses. The names and addresses in the directory. Okay. Yeah. At any rate, we'll get, we'll get you uh, in, into the directory. But basically, you don't even have to, the idea is not to just get your name in the directory. It's to permit us to be in touch with you uh, in between uh, your, your presence here. So please uh, participate in that sign-up sheet if you can. Uh, otherwise, uh, if there are no further announcements, we'll have our dedication of our by the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity, without too much attachment or too much aversion, and live believing in the equality of all that lives. Sadhu. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.